Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can check out the podcast at Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, wherever you listen to podcasts pretty much. But um, the YouTube channel is a good place to go. You can also get exclusive uh, quick take reviews as well as uh, every everything else you'd find on the uh, podcast feed. You can also check out patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. And um, there you'll find exclusive content, including a new series that I've been doing the past couple months called Leaving the Collection, where I go over a uh, movie that I've had in my collection for a while and watch it and give it one last uh, review before kind of explain why it's time in my collection is gone. That is going to be at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. And befitting the uh, topic at hand tonight, I wanted to go ahead and say that my original score for the movie Player PhD, which I worked on earlier this year, is available for pre-order over at Bandcamp. And you can find the link to that on Sonic Cinema or just go to Bandcamp and look up my name, Brian S-K-U-T-L-E. And you can pre-order it and you will get ex- you will get exclusive access to two of the tracks there and i hope you check that out it was a it was a quite process and it was one that i really enjoyed so this is this is going to be kind of an interesting episode it's not the first time we've kind of done a crossover in one time uh the first time i had Stuart delaney uh kind of tied into our discussion on his snarky faith uh podcast but this is one that directly responds to a discussion I had with on another podcast, and that is I am here with uh, Robert Yass Jr., who is the proprietor of Crooked Table and the host of Close Watch and Franchise Detours. About a week or so before this episode is released, we discussed the we you could hear our discussion of the Wachowskis and Tom Tyker's uh, Cloud Atlas. Today, we are going to be discussing the score, which I think, in addition to the movie, I think has a big part to play and has always been one of my favorites. But Robert, thank you very much for joining me. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks for having me back. So before we get started with this uh, larger discussion, um. Where can people find you online? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can find Crook Table Productions and, as you mentioned, our shows, Close Watch and Franchise Detours, where right now I think we're about to do the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, in that show, we, we believe no movie series travels in a straight line, so every episode we talk about an installment in an ongoing franchise. Uh, we just finished the Muppet movies. Speaking of lots and lots of music... <laughs> Uh, in there as well, as well as in the Dark Knight trilogy, of course. And on uh, Close Watch, as you just said, we our most recent episode was us talking about Cloud Atlas. And you can find that all the both of the shows and everything we do on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Yeah. And uh, if you if you are, hopefully you're familiar with uh, Franchise Detours from our uh, 
epic three-hour discussion of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3 back in May. Um, it was it was a lot of fun to talk about that, not only because of the fact that I love that movie so much, but because to listen to the other people uh, Robert had on to discuss those movies, it really does show just how much variety of thought goes into the way different people react to different chapters of a franchise. And I, I think it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to hear him. I, I still need to get caught up with his Muppet episodes. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing the dark Knight ones as well. Yeah, that's that it's, it's been an interesting ride uh, going down that particular version of Gotham city. We're, we're just breaking it down to the dark Knight trilogy because doing every Batman movie would just be a, a whole podcast unto itself. <laughs> uh, I reserve the right to circle back to the nineties uh, Burton Schumacher ones at some point. So I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. But in the meantime, I think the dark Knight trilogy is considering how much uh, it's held in high esteem and how much it's impacted cinema and the genre specifically since then, I think is really, really fascinating. A, a franchise that ended the same year that Cloud Atlas came out, too, in 2012. So a yeah. uh, franchise celebrating its 10-year anniversary since its conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, before we dive into Cloud Atlas specifically, though, I wanted to ask you, because this is, this is something we, we've talked about in context of the movies that we've discussed. But we haven't yeah. really talked about it in any particular depth. Um, what is your relationship beyond obviously uh, hearing them in the movies? What is your relationship with film soundtracks? So so rich. Um, it's I I have a tendency to every time I see a film or or most times I see a film I'm usually either either on in the car on the way back from the theater or the next day while I'm I'm writing uh looking up on Spotify to see if the soundtrack is there to see if the score is there I've l lately been listening to uh the the Pearls score <laughs> quite a bit uh, because that movie it does something very specific and very interesting with its sort of grand old Hollywood uh you know Technicolor kind of uh vibe going on with this sinister underpinning so i i really love that and uh it's it's just something that i I've, I've been interested in since since forever uh, i think it started probably as a kid with a lot of the disney soundtracks mm -hmm. uh lion king aladdin and all the like disney renaissance uh and i remember before christmas was a big one for me as well uh we're recording this on october so that's one that i'm listening to a lot lately uh and and I feel like a lot of cinephiles, my relationship with composers and getting to follow their work over longer periods of time, it really, it's it's kind of cliche, but it starts with John Williams, it starts to Danny Elfman, it starts with those filmmakers doing music for like the big, uh, the big franchises, the Star Wars and the the Batmans and things like that. So as a child, those two were probably my entry point. But then now since then, uh, it's it's really kind of spiraled out into a larger appreciation for for film scores because they it's try and watch any of these movies with without music it's it's such an important ingredient to it uh more, most recently I, I you know not most recently but in recent years i think one of the best examples of that is alan silvestri's score for avengers endgame that movie it, it, that portal sequence is entirely based on 
that song and the yeah. impact that music has when that scene happens. Yes, you're seeing all the actors, but the music punctuates when Tom Holland's Spider-Man swings through the portal or when uh, the late Chadwick Boseman comes through as T'Challa. Like it, it, and Sylvester's another one of those composers uh, since Back to the Future and yeah. Roger Rabbit. That's really kind of been on my radar. And, and it's, it's a very... And especially as a, as a writer, as someone who's always, you know, listening to something on the background, that's usually a film score. So it's, mm-hmm. it's there very intertwined, my appreciation for the music and the film itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, we've actually, we've already talked quite a bit about uh, my history of film scores uh, because our first uh, discussion on Close Watch was for The Crow, which was one of my, which yeah. is my favorite film soundtrack of all time and you know just how foundational that score and that soundtrack is for me uh we're we're kind of talking about another one today and uh it's cloud atlas is an interesting one um it is composed by it's one of the few uh it's it's a score that is composed by one of the directors tom tykewers one of the composers on here as well as Johnny Klimek and Reinhold Hale. And um, this was a score... We we talked a little bit about my first reaction to Cloud Atlas on Close Watch, so I won't necessarily... Uh, so I won't necessarily uh, rehash that here. But the thing that I took away so much from this movie was, like you, I, I had to get this soundtrack immediately after listening to it and after watching the movie. And this is, you can ask my coworkers at the time, this is a soundtrack that I had on loop for months. Um, it is, it's, it's such a hypnotic score. And the thing it's, it's in my reading my review, I think the the one time the last time I had a score that impacted me this much from a film before Cloud Atlas was The Fountain which uh is another movie about interlocking stories at different points in history. Um but that score by Clint Mansell for that movie just it it's such an interesting sound the way that he uses Kronos Quartet the way he uses Mogwai in in his orchestrations there is just so amazing. This is a score that's very much in the classical s- tradition, very much in the classical configuration of what an orchestra sounds like, very much in the vein of what John Williams scores sound like, what old Hollywood scores sound like, what were your impressions of the score when you first saw Cloud Atlas? It felt like something, it, it felt like a sort of classical theme. And this is, of course, the whole point of, of its role in the film. It felt like a piece of classical music that had existed forever. Like it felt, it felt like something that you would have, you would stumble across uh, randomly and be like, what is this? Like, it, it, and, which is why its inclusion in that sequence when Louisa Ray, Halle Berry's character in the, the 1973 segment, goes into the store and hears it playing, 
uh, and the store clerk is like, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I just couldn't, I just, I just can't stop playing it. I know we're not supposed to, but, uh, so I, it's, as you were talking about it, like the, the opening chords were running through my head and I think it's, it's so ingrained in this story in a way that most movies don't have the score uh, involved because not only is it playing in the background and, and punctuating the scenes and, and, you know, kind of drawing the story forward it's literally a part of the story itself it's yeah. this this film has a it, it's it's diegetic at, at points with the the ben wishaw the robert frobisher character mm-hmm. and it's not only not only that it, it's part of this ongoing chain that as as creative people brian it particularly resonates with us because this is a movie where robert frobisher is inspired by this memoir that he's reading of Adam Ewing that is unfinished that he doesn't get he doesn't have the other half of the book so he doesn't know that Adam Ewing's story ends happily had he known that perhaps his story might have ended differently but he he doesn't get to discover that and then that score comes to play later on and and, and uh leads to um leads to a film and it's just it, the way that the the art ripples throughout time leading to that revolution in neo soul and then ultimately uh ultimately sort of the 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 story with zachary and uh Marinim. i think it's 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 a beautiful testament to art as the legacy that that these individuals leave behind mm-hmm. and that it, it trickles down from a book to a symphony you know, to a, to a film that it, that inspires a revolution that that becomes legend, that becomes uh, you know, Sanmi is 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 treated as a god by the time you get to the twenty three twenty one story after the fall, and ultimately it, that whole ripple effect starts with Adam Ewing and Robert Frobisher, and I think it's mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things that you in a lot of thing in a lot of times when you're dealing with tragedy or you're dealing with, you know, most recently on a grand scale or pandemic. And uh, the obvious question is, well, why would I bother doing that? Does this matter? Like, what is the point of, of pursuing art when there's these real life tragedies out there? Like, is it, is this really the best use of my time? You saw that a lot of that after nine 11, a lot of people being like, well, how do we continue now with comedy? Like, or, or music or filmmaking or, you know, escapism when clearly there are things that need to be addressed. Uh, and I think this film is a testament to know that that stuff matters. Yeah. It, it makes an impact. It changes people's lives. It can change the course of history if it gets into the right hands. And the score to this movie is emblematic of that because it's, mm-hmm. it's literally affecting the characters in the movie. It's, it is in itself sort of a character of the movie. And the fact that you know, the Cloud Atlas sextet is a term that could be applied to not only Frobisher's score, but also the six characters, the six stories in this. The music is essentially the title character of this movie. Yeah. No, I, absolutely. And I mean, we, you know, and I, I touched on that a little bit when we were talking about the, the movie itself on Close Watch. And mm-hmm. it's it's worth repeating here. And you, you brought up the word diegetic music. So if you're not familiar with Di- the term diegetic music, if you're listening to this, diegetic music is basically source music. It's music that comes 
from that is a part of the fictional setting of a narrative, whether it's a film, whether it's a video game. And so it's basically something that interacts directly with the characters of the story. Uh, the cantina scene, the cantina band sequence in Star Wars is a great example of diegetic music. It's music that takes place in within the world of Star Wars. I uh, one of my probably my favorite example outside of Cloud Atlas is Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles film. The way that Henry Mancini's music, and I mean really, Mancini is a great example of using score very diegetically in the way that he repeats themes in ways that are very real world to the narratives, whether you're talking about Touch of Evil, whether you're talking about the Pink Panther or Charade or Shot in the Dark and all that stuff. He was he was a master at that. Um so yeah, the Cloud Atlas it's interesting because yes, the Cloud Atlas sex set, as I mentioned, a sex set is essentially a musical piece with six parts. And as you reinforced here, we're dealing with six stories. We're dealing with six main characters, six main actors. And this is very much, the sex set is the title, essentially the title piece of the music. And the thing that I find is interesting is that when they're, when they are writing the score, when they're writing the underscore, they're very careful. It feels like, in how they use the sex set theme. The sex set almost entirely exists as source music and not as part of the score. Now, if you listen to the score individually, you can tell that there are moments where the theme, that theme kicks in. But for the most part, they have a completely separate theme for the score, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's... And they not only that the the music in the in the film is reused in different ways in different uh, in different time periods. It yeah. pops up in different. It's it reminds me, and this is a comparison I made on my show as well. It reminds me of in uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Not to go back to that again, but the uh, absolutely story of a girl, which is in it, you know, was quoted by one of the characters at one point, and then the filmmakers, the Daniels, reached out. To the uh, to the musician who, who whose name escapes me, uh, who was the lead singer of, uh, and songwriter of Nine Days, the band that did that song, and had him write alternate versions. So there's like a slow, like country ballad version of it playing on the car radio during one scene. There's like a, a like uh, you know grungier version playing during the the kind of the dominatrix uh, sequence of that of that film. Like it pops up about three or four or five different times in that movie in different ways to sort of signify the, the distinction between those different stories, those different worlds and their connectivity. And I think you see that kind of at play in cloud Atlas as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, now, I mean, you, what you said about basically this, this is a film that, and I think it's part of the reason why it connected with me so much even if I wouldn't necessarily have written it this way, even if I wouldn't have necessarily expressed it this way, it's something that I definitely recognize now as I watch it again and again, um, is this idea that art is something that 
works on people throughout the generations. I mean, you mentioned the memoir from Ewing basically inspiring the Cloud Atlas sextet. Then you have the that lovely little scene where Louisa Ray is getting the copy of the sextet and the store, store owner or the store clerk who's also played by Ben Wishaw who plays Frobiger um, is listening to it and he just can't stop listening to it. It's it's intoxicating. And then the 2012 scene you have in a different context is almost like Muzak in a long, in a way. Um, and then of course you have that great in Neo soul serves several purposes because you hear, I, one of the characters playing it on an instrument that's just sort of like, uh, a, a different type of string instrument that, and uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed that in the film where it's like, and it's played, it's, it's a character played by Jim Broadbent who played the composer that Frobiger was working with in when he wrote the sextet. And now Broadbent's character is playing it at through the, while they go through the, uh, the slums of Neo Soul to the revolutions, uh, you know, sort of main hideout and stuff yeah. like that. But the it's also under it's also score in the really over melodramatic like movie of Cavendish's life in that Tom Hanks plays Cavendish in, mm-hmm. yep. and it's but also it's it's this quat choral there's this choral aspect to it that is that the replicants sing it as they're going to exaltation and which you mentioned on the, uh, on close watch and the ways that it uses that theme while also giving us other ideas and other little motifs that I think is really, it's, it's one of the, it's, it's one of the most interesting soundtracks to listen to collectively speaking because i mean you can listen to the sex set um on the soundtrack and it's it's great because of the fact that it works with the film and the thing that i think is kind of interesting is that the score really is predominantly strings it's not really it really isn't a full orchestra it's predominantly a string uh, string orchestra, which is really kind of an interesting choice, other than the percussion that's used. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's very, it's very epic in in scope, but also minimalist in execution, which I think is an interesting contradiction that that uh, I think also kind of feels like emblematic of the film. The fact that we are following these six stories across hundreds of years. But also these are just the stories of six people and their sort of inner struggles to do the right thing, to uh, to move the needle ahead, forward, just a little bit with the small amount of time they have on this planet. And I think it's, it, it, it has, like you were saying, it has such a unique relationship to the film. It, it's unlike any any film and, and music sort of relation, uh, dynamic that I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and the fact that there's this entire, like they could have easily just leaned on the sex set theme through 
throughout the score, and it will have been basically this this main theme that they uh, that just permeates throughout the rest of the film. But I I love that, and it's really the it's the the main theme of the score. Da, da. Wait a minute. I, yeah. I I I can't sing it to save my but uh yeah it, if you listen to the track New Directions, which I think is one of the key moments of not only the narrative but the music as well. It's the moment where all of these moment all of these stories seem to be building and reaching their second act climax before getting to the third act. And it's it's just such a simple, simple uh, theme going up and down, and it's a very romantic theme. It's pl- it can play as a romantic theme in like when we see uh, Chang and Somni four five one make love, when we see Frobisher and Six Smith in in that scene breaking plates and. And uh, it's just all of these moments where it it just has you've got two separate themes that have such an impact on the movie's emotional pull. It's it's just really it's really mar- remarkable that uh, that a score can do that in in a way that this one does. But I think it's also important because of how big of a narrative we're talking about. Yeah, I, I I gather by that track title that is that the music that's playing when Tom Hanks' character Isaac Sachs is has that voiceover. Yes. About yes. Uh, yeah, he says uh, our lives and our choices, like quantum trajectories, are understood moment to moment at each point of intersection. Each encounter suggests a new potential direction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love that. That was the other on on my show. We talk, we talked briefly about lines that stick out, and I I mentioned something by San Me. That was the other one that I almost yeah. mentioned was what Isaac Sachs says because it's that it's exactly that that what you're saying. It's it's it captures what movies like what movies like uh, Crash from 2005. They try they're trying to uh, trying to capture how people's lives intersect and affect them and push them in different directions and and uh, change the the course of their lives and all that stuff. And I think. Cloud Atlas for one does that infinitely more successfully. Yeah. And um and also it's that it, it happens that scene is punctuated by the plane that Isaac Sachs is on exploding uh in the sky. It is sort of feels like the it's trying to convey sort of the enduring human spirit that like we're we're you know, we all come across each other's paths and you know, we we keep trying to push forward, and then adversity hits, and then you know the way the movie ends. I think it, it adds that little bit of of hope that hey, we're going to keep perpetuating, we're going to keep pushing on, and and ultimately, when Marinim at the end of the the film is telling Zachary, uh, you know, is there a deity? I don't know, but you know, we have each other. Essentially, it feels almost to me like the Cloud Atlas sextet as the linking device throughout these different stories is almost like just the universe or or God or whatever you want to call it itself, sort of observing from a distance. Uh, you know, I, Marvel is sort of permeates my perspective on everything because it's taken over pop culture. So it's almost like the watcher just kind of looking over 
all mm-hmm. these storylines taking place over time and <clears throat> you know pushing them forward and giving them uh giving them room for growth uh in the long term no i think that's an excellent point and sort of going with what you were you know you you mentioned that uh the voiceover for, by uh sax at that moment it's a great moment and i completely agree you know it goes back to something that we talked about in uh close watch to a certain extent where the 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 film's representations of good and evil and basically the whole spectrum of human morality in a way is really very fascinating and i think hanks's character really kind of exemplifies that more because of the fact that his his doctor in the se- the sequence with ewing is very much evil and then the the sort of the middle section the the middle part of his trajectory like in he he doesn't have a big big moment in Frobisher he's he's basically a clerk who who kind of you know can tell that you know Frobisher needs some looking after he's going to profit off of it so he's he's not quite as he he's not quite as evil as the doctor is but at the same time he's he's not afraid to you know do some morally ambiguous things there sax you can tell he's kind of trying to do the right thing but he's unable to go through completely because he dies so he pays the price for it and then um the author is just kind of a very much a step back but um and then you have Zachary at the end where he's somebody who he has he has the devil essentially old Georgie uh working on him constantly basically telling them like the weaker me and the strong shall eat and basically this theme of natural selection this bastardization of the idea of what natural selection is and um you know and it's basically Zachary who redeems humanity in a way because of the fact that by able by pushing through those emotions that Georgie's pushing him towards he he finds the redemption that uh Hanks's that was denied Sachs earlier on in the film exactly yeah and underlying or kind of highlighting exactly that progression that you're saying the uh the the what is i forget the thing you already said it and i already forgot the the, the about the the meat will uh the weak or meat and the the strong, strong shall eat. eat yeah yes it's exactly what dr goose says to adam ewing when yeah. he's trying to sort of finish him off with the poison so it, it it is exactly what you're saying like that progression the film is both subtle in these developments but also not so subtle at the same time uh, which is why when we talked about on my show, I was pointing out how it's challenging to the viewers, but also accessible at the same. Like it's it's complex, but not incomprehensible. Like yeah. some critics apparently thought it was in 2012. And and you brought up the fact that um, you know inspire you know the the idea of connectivity and inspiring creativity that connects people um 
through difficult times. You kind of brought that up and you brought up the pandemic and it's like, I did, I forgot to bring it up on uh, close watch, but I did want to bring up um, Robert Daniels. I know uh, when the pandemic did start, he, he did a tremendous piece on cloud Atlas and the idea of connectivity. And I, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about the score for this is the fact that, it really ties in that connectivity and it starts at it starts in the opening when you know we we talked about how it introduces all of the different narrative threads that we're going to go through and um the score is a huge part of what makes that so captivating um because it's starting very early on with this epics giving us this idea that this is going to be an epic film and this idea that it's going to be a film where all of these characters, all of these stories are going to be connected somehow, even if we don't exactly know why to start out with. It's, it's really kind of interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I love the different, um, I love the different tones that this film plays with. I you know we we talked about there's a little bit of dark comedy there in the Cavendish in the Cavendish story there's some more serious you know there's really kind of horror elements to the after the fall really cuz I mean you're dealing with cannibals and a very ominous devil like character playing on Zachary and then you have the 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 uh Neo Soul, which is futuristic sci-fi. You have the period romance, the tragic romance. You have the mystery, and then you have the epic, uh, the sea-faring epic. That uh, you know, you and the score works effortlessly in all of these contexts. It's also the use of language too. If we're if we're talking about like it builds off of music is the is a is the universal language, but also the language involved in these different stories and how the manner of, in which these characters speak to each other changes so drastically from the 1849 story, specifically to the after the fall story where yeah. it, it helps a lot to have this on Blu-ray with subtitles because <laughs> in theater it's like you get the gist of it, but the, their manner of speaking is so far removed from our own that it's, it is jarring to, to sort of witness like how that has evolved. And I think it's, it it fits each of these stories has their own way of communicating their own sort of uh you know their own their own language in and of itself and i think it's it's interesting to sort of note that along with sort of the way the music changes and highlights these different genres because it it's the the 2012 story like i legit remember when mr meeks uh when they pick him up and he's like i know i know like there's some there were some cheering in my theater that oh was, yeah <laughs> it's it's really crowd pleasing for a movie that's this thematically rich. Uh, the, the the Wachowskis and, and Tom Tickware know how to make this not feel like a, a philosophy course. You know, they they know how to how to in, infuse life in every every facet of the story, whether it's comedy or tragedy or horror, as you were saying. Even with with Zachary making the morally questionable at least according to the abbess choice of uh slitting the kona chief's throat i thought that was yeah. an interesting mo note too where it's it it, it ends the movie ends on a hopeful way 
with Zachary ending, ending up with Maranam, with Cavendish ending up with Ursula, with uh, have most of these stories, aside from Frobisher's having a happy ending, I think it's, it, it, with Zachary's choice, it puts that little seed of doubt that, hey, this, this evolution is not over. Yeah. We still have some growing to do. And I think that that's, it's those, those complications, the refusal to give audiences a clear answer, a clear right or wrong, a clear, you know, black or white. This, this movie lives in the, in the moral gray. And I think that's fascinating because that's, that's the most realistic portrayal of mankind that's is balancing that scale. And that we mentioned the six characters, some of which are, are, inherently good some of which are inherently evil some of which change for better or worse and i think that's mm-hmm. it's it it, it it yeah it has so much to say with all those details yeah there's 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 an idea of redemption through the the course of helping others and you really kind of get that feeling throughout all of them i mean even with the frobisher story where it's like you 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 get the feeling that in his letters to six myth He's trying to he he's trying to assuage any feeling of hopelessness about their love. Where right. you know, and and that moment where he sees him on the 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 church, on the at the top of the church, and he doesn't see Sixsmith doesn't see him, but he sees Sixsmith. And it's you know, that that that's just such a beautiful moment. You get the you get the main theme that plays, and it's something that really all of the characters that are all of the characters are ultimately redeemed by their what they do to help others. I mean, Cavendish understand you know Cavendish is really selfish when it starts out because of the fact that yes, he needs money to pay off these gangsters but at the same time he's he's going about very selfishly and then it's when he helps others escape this situation that he finds himself in he 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 is able to get his happy ending and that that's kind of the same way with every one of the every one of the characters in this movie yeah yeah we're none of us are in this alone son me has a her her big uh, refrain is is we're all you know essentially we're all connected, our our lives affect each other you know every act of kindness and or every I forget I don't have it in front of me at the moment I did last last time we recorded but I don't have it now, um, <laughs> but essentially that's the sentiment is that you know you can you can affect the the course of the future with every act it, it all ma- it all matters and that's another that's a sentiment that's also. Uh, really explicitly highlighted by Adam Ewing when he says, oh, you know, this is but a, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Reverend Horrocks is like, oh, this is just a, but a drop in an ocean. And then he, and then Adam responds with, well, what is an ocean, but, but a multitude of drops. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love that. This is like mm-hmm. such powerful, succinct lines and the Wachowskis at their best. Uh, we, you know, we went through our, our favorite works of theirs uh, on my show at their best, they are able to infuse those themes, those messages, uh, and even sometimes life lessons into their stories organically. I think elements of their films, especially, particularly I'm thinking of 
the the middle two Matrix sequels, particularly Reloaded, there are seg segments in there there that are just lectures copy and pasted into a, into a screenplay, and I feel like it's not focused on the narrative. The narrative stops so that so that they can elucidate what they're trying to get across with this movie. Yeah, and I think in Cloud Atlas, it's they're so intertwined that it feels seamless, and it and it has that that viewer satisfaction where you don't feel like you're being you know, it's not didactic. You don't feel like you're being lectured or, or uh, schooled while you're in the middle of this three-hour movie. It feels like closure for, for that character when that line comes out. Mm -hmm. it, it really does feel like a, uh, it feels like a great piece of music. And I would love to watch this just with the isolated score to see how it would play that way because of the fact that I feel like all of the emotions that are at work in this film would still come through, even if you're just listening to the music, because one of the things that's great about this, where it, it really does play like a piece of music where it rises, it falls as moments of stasis as moments where it's, it's reshaping itself into something completely different. And it, it is like the symphony the movements of a symphony in that way. And it's, it's really fascinating in the way that it takes musical structure into a very narrative structure from a storytelling standpoint, but you don't necessarily feel like this is you, you don't necessarily, the, the music is such a fundamental part of the narrative in this. And it's one of the things that I think is it's, it really is, it captures what great film music is, which is a compliment to the images, to the story. And it's a fundamental part of the story that even if you, I think the great soundtracks just, I know you're not supposed to, you know, feel here, the film music's not supposed to obviously overshadow the film, but the great soundtracks complement the film. And, you know, we've, we've talked about The Crow. I think that is an ex excellent example of it as well. Not just because of the way the, the orchestra was scoring the soundtrack, the songs play, but the way that everything plays towards the emotions of that final moment that the film builds towards. And it's certainly the case, I think, with Cloud Atlas as well. Yeah, it, it, because of that, it feels... Because I 100% I, I agree with you. There are, there are times, like I said, but when I see a film, I often track down the score. There are some that, you, you know, it's fun to revisit, but they don't really work as well as independent works of art. They're very... They're so tied to... Uh, they're, they're so dependent on those images sort of playing off of the music itself. Uh, I, and the Cloud Atlas score feels like something that was like if you had told me, and this is sort of what I was thinking with this specifically with the sextet, that it feels like a piece of classical music that just existed. If you had told me that pieces of this music existed before the movie or that the Cloud Atlas sextet was a something by, you know, Beethoven or Tchaikovsky that they discovered and then based a movie off of, I would, it, it, it feels 100%, you know, plausible. Yeah. It feels like a movie based on a piece of classical music instead of 
a movie that spawns a, a piece of classical music, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think I, a great film that I actually started to think about was uh, Amadeus, which obviously is built off of Mozart's music, but the way that it uses Mozart's music to score, to give us the emotional charge of the drama that's happening on screen is 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 just fascinating and it's it's a great use of it it's a great example of source music diegetic music but also something that previously existed that also just connects us with the characters and with the story in a way that transcends the initial intent of the music as well yeah definitely what are some of your favorite soundtracks? That's a loaded question. Like I said, I, <laughs> I have a lot of them. I, I tend to gravitate for uh, for whatever reason to the the you know because I think this is what my initial sort of uh, entry point was for for uh, for film scores to the big the, the big themes. So a lot of the you know Star Wars the the Batman's, the uh, Lord of the Rings, things like that. Yeah. Uh, but then there's there's certain other ones that they're much more intimate that, you know, in the last 10 or 15, 15 or 20 years, actually, that I've really come to appreciate. The uh, one example being, and I've sort of cooled on the movie a bit, <clears throat> but the score does something very specific to the the big the, the narrative. Uh, and that's the Atonement score by... I think it's Dario Marinelli. Yeah. That one, I, I love that score. I adore it. It's, it's so, because it has the, the sort of the keys clacking as part of the score, which feeds into the whole uh, unreliable narration of that film and where it ultimately leads. Uh, there is the Pan's Labyrinth score by Javier Navarrete that I, I've listened to a lot. Any, pretty much also anything involving a lot of, Piano. I, I uh, there was a period where I was listening to a lot of the Finding Neverland soundtrack, uh, as well as you know some of the classic ones, Vangelis for uh, Blade Runner or you know Ennio Morricone for Psycho. I have a a growing collection of uh, of film scores. Lately, I haven't gotten as many in physical media just because I you know we're all we're all digital now these days. Yeah. But I yeah. there's a lot of that a lot of ones that I've listen to more recently on Spotify, even just this year, I've been listening to the, uh, the everything everywhere all at once one, obviously by some, mm -hmm. uh, some Lux. Uh, I've been listening to the Michael Giacchino score for the Batman quite yeah. a bit as well. Pretty much <laughs> Giacchino has become one of those standbys like a John Williams, like a, like a Danny Elfman, like a, you know, Hans Zimmer, where you're like, oh, he's gonna, he's, even if the movie's like fine, the score will probably yeah. be pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he has, it helps that he has a new one like every month. I feel. <laughs> I know, guy's right? Working constantly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was um, wild in, it was wild in 2009 when he, I mean, obviously it's because of production, you know, it, it, it's, it's a case of, you know, it has nothing to do with, oh my God, he was doing the same, those two at once. It's just a matter of one took longer than the other. In two thousand May of two thousand nine, he had Star Trek and he had Up. And I mean, it's like when when moments like that happen, it's just so wild. I I will correct you though. Uh, Morricone yeah, did yeah. not write Psycho. That was Bernard oh, Herman. Oh, Bernard Herman. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, but I, I mean, sense. honestly, like 
it, you know, Morricone is somebody I absolutely adore, and I've talked about the good, right. the bad, the ugly here before, and um, I I agree with you on the atonement score, especially the uh, the the scene, the uh, LG for Dunkirk sequence in that yes. where oh my gosh. where that tracking shot that goes with the choir and the choir performing and stuff like that is just absolutely amazing piece of film. It it's a it's an amazing piece of use of music in in a film. I absolutely love that score. Um, and to our earlier point, that's a sequence where the the music is it, the film is drawing attention to the music. It's yeah. the whole it's the point of the scene, and and I think it it, it sort of uh, it, it sort of emphasizes what we were saying earlier about yeah the score should disappear into the movie kind of but also there's a way to accent it without under without overshadowing the, the movie itself it doesn't as long as it fail, fits the theme and the atmosphere of the movie if it, it's not jarring i think there's there's a real marriage there there's a real possibility there yeah exactly yeah it's uh this is there there's a lot of uh there's a lot of great things you can talk about music and i mean i I think the the Wachowskis, when you listen to, even when you're listening to something like The Matrix, where, um, you know, I mean, Don Davis's score is such such a big part of that, but you also have the songs yeah. that are come into play. But one of the things I love, we were talking about Giacchino a little bit, his score for Speed Racer, where he uses the classic Speed Racer theme, but he also builds on it to create a larger soundtrack for that film. And it's just really quite beautiful. And I, I love the the ways in which the Wachowskis seem to really play on, give composers room to have their own ideas when it comes to what film is what a film score here is. Now, I think this one, you do kind of have to have a very particular one. And, uh, you know, Tyker's the one who wrote the sex set. And I think it's having that classical bass is such an important part of it. If you were, you know, if you were to goose the, you know, if you were to play with each each time period in its own way of like having a certain sound for the Ewing sequences versus the Neo soul sequences versus after the fall, you will have lost something because of the fact that I think that continuity of that, what the score in this film represents is such an important thing. And it, in you know, researching the film for for these episodes, the filmmakers approach this, even though it's six main characters across time, as one mega narrative. It's yeah. one story that that builds. It just happens to be jumping from from different character to different character. And I think it, you that's uh, to your point. It, it, if the film, if the music, if there were six different little mini scores, sort of what like uh, what Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller did for Sin City, where they had different composers yeah. doing, I think John Debney did one, Rodriguez did one, I forget who did them. Graham Ravel did Trami. the third one. Oh, there yeah. you go. Thank you. Ravel did the third Great one. Great scores, by the way. That, yeah. that film, I love that score and that film as well. But if they had done that, it would have felt like vignette instead of a cohesive uh, yeah. one, you know, one piece. 
uh, of one piece of cinema, you know, sort of equivocating to the one piece of, of music that it sort of uh, works as as well. Yeah, exactly. No, and and I mean that that is one of those it's one of those choices when you when it comes to what is the movie going to sound like musically? And I mean, you know, I know going to, you know, talking about the, you know, working with the, uh, working on the film score that um, I did earlier this year was really interesting because of the fact that, I mean, I'll talk about it at some point in more depth, but it's one of those things where I, I had specific ideas of what I had in mind in one way. I mean, some of which held over into the final score, but some of which don't. And as soon as you see, as soon as you see what, how the film and the score work together, it makes sense that the ideas that didn't work fall by the wayside and what did work works because of the fact that, I mean, it, goes with what the the ideas of the movie are and i i think that's one of the that sense of discovery is i think important on the creative level and i mean it really speaks to um the collaboration at work that filmmakers need to have with their composers because of the fact that if you're not necessarily on the same page it's going to be tougher to do yeah Absolutely. Uh, since we're talking Wachowskis and their scores, uh, what were you, I'm curious, this is sort of a little bit of a mini tangent from Cloud Atlas, but since uh, Klimek and Tickward did the score for The Matrix Resurrection, what was sort of your take on that score as opposed to having Don Davis come back? Because of, for obvious reasons, because of the same composers, the Resurrection score feels much more akin to Cloud Atlas than it does the previous Matrix films. But I feel like that film also has more thematically in common with Cloud Atlas in a way. I, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I think it's a, it, it is disappointing that Don Davis didn't come back. I mean, I feel like the way that that score for the Matrix trilogy, uh, especially as they were bringing in more and more electronics, it became it became a very different thing. And like, like you said, because of how much uh, Resurrections kind of leans on ideas that they explore in Cloud Atlas. And I mean, Don, David Mitchell, who wrote the novel Cloud Atlas, was one of the writers on Ma Matrix Resurrection. And obviously the composers are the same as well. I think it makes sense because of the fact that, you know, it's always it's always kind of, how do you feel about that with with them changing composers midstream? I mean, you know, it's it and you know, you you brought up the Avengers earlier. It's like you have Avenger most of the Avengers movies were scored by Alan Silvestri, except for Age of mm -hmm. Ultron, which was Brian Tyler and Danny Elfman, which is interesting because I never really got a reason as to why Silvestri did not come back for that. Um, but I mean, yeah. I know Brian Tyler was really, he worked on like two or three of the phase two films because he did Iron Man three, he did Thor, the dark world. And I think he wrote that Marvel theme and, uh, it was an interesting, it's interesting, but you can definitely tell 
that's some it's somebody else's ideas and I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Yeah. But um you know it's 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 one of those things where it's like I I feel like for this one it kind of makes sense again because of those collaborators that uh the Wachowskis brought in or Lily Wachowski brought in on uh Resurrections and I I think it 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 does make sense that it's a different different set of composers but I think there's there's also enough that if I remember correctly I'm not as familiar with the Resurrections scores I am the other ones I feel like there's enough they I mean they still lean on some of the same themes but obviously the sound is a bit different right and I I mean I I think so long as you're not necessarily banding those themes and it ties into what you're wanting to do with the film I think it's fine yeah yeah it's I think it's also I wonder how indicative it is of uh the fact that uh, it was actually Lana that did Resurrections, not oh, Lily, by the way. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, but the fact that Lana was involved and Lily wasn't, it makes me, it makes me wonder, like, which Wachowski sisters was is int- is interested in certain particular aspects of the storytelling. Like, it was Lily more the driving force of the you know the spectacle, the action, and whereas Lana is much more focused on the the cerebral side of things because that's one of the big things that a lot of people criticize resurrections for is the action sequences are not up to par with yeah. previous matrix films which i don't disagree with but it's also there's enough for me to engage with intellectually and as a fan of those characters in this franchise to sort of shrug it off and be like yeah okay we got that motorcycle chase that's cool so exactly. i'm good with there's enough in there for me to enjoy uh regardless but it makes me wonder how much of that was was Lana? How much of influence in, in Cloud Atlas was Lana versus Lily? The fact that Matrix Resurrections feels like such a in a, in a weird, weirdly a, a it feels like Matrix meets it's like a Matrix story set in the world of Cloud Atlas in in some ways, which is not necessarily a dig at it. We we spent so long talking about how much we love Cloud Atlas, so I'm fine with that. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I wonder if that was part of the mindset behind bringing those same collaborators in. I, I have a feeling it probably was. I mean, I, I, I think what what you talked about, and thank you for correcting me on that, uh, makes yeah. a lot of sense. And I I think that, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where, uh, I mean, I'm sure there, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are particular reasons for it. But at the same time, it, you know, I mean, I, I think so long as it works for the film itself, I think those type of, choices to bring certain composers and collaborators back versus others can work. And I I think in Resurrections it works more often than not than compared to what other people have to say. Um yeah, it's it's uh it it and it basically goes to it's you know look at it's it's an evolution of different uh different ways of storytelling. I mean, look at what the Cone brothers are doing separate from one another. I mean, you know, Tragedy of Macbeth is as far removed from anything the Cone brothers had really ever done before, but at the same time, you have Francis McDormand, you have Carter Burwell, you have some similar collaborators, but it's really an interesting... It's really an interesting uh, shift f- 
from what we're used to in a Coen Brothers film while also maintaining a little bit of that Coen Brothers sensibility. I mean, you do kind of feel like that in some moments of tragedy of Macbeth. And, uh, you know, look at Ethan. I mean, he's he's going to be working with different collaborators for the first time in ages. And it's yeah. it's it's really going to be... It's really interesting to see how... Um, how filmmakers evolve over over time. Sometimes people find new collaborators that it it just makes sense to to continue with them. I mean, you know, John, you know, Steven Spielberg hasn't had a uh, hasn't had a different cinematographer from Janusz Kaminski since Schindler's List. I mean, he he just I mean he there's a reason for that, but you know, it's it's something that. I, he wanted to stretch his wings with other collaborators. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens when uh, John Williams retires, too. It's like, who is he, yeah. he going to get to score his films? Is he going to go with some of the other composers? Is he going to work with one particular composer? Or is he going to just see who seems to be a good fit for whatever particular story he's telling? No, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, speaking of speaking of uh, music, film music and collaborators, like the the Spielberg Williams uh, partnership has been going strong for decades. Uh, how uh, how I'm sure that he didn't do every single Spielberg movie, no, right? Was there no. any that he? Um, so th- there was a couple, I think, because it's like Elfman and Burton, where there was once or twice. I yeah. think like Howard Shore did Ed Wood, I believe, and yeah, and, like, he did like that, yeah. Yeah, so I I can I know that with especially with Howard Shore doing Ed Wood, that was a matter of Danny Elfman was just completely burned out after Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. And he wanted to break from that collaboration. Um so Spielberg and Williams, I technically their first time not working together was Twilight Zone the movie where Spielberg directed a directed a segment. Jerry Goldsmith did the score for all of that. Um, and then you have The Color Purple, which Quincy Jones did. But that was mainly... That was... A big part of that was because of the fact that that was basically... Quincy Jones drove that movie more than Spielberg did, really. So I think that was a... And, I mean, it's a lovely score. If you've ever seen The Color Purple, it's a really great score. A few years ago, Bridge of Spies was uh, Thomas Newman. Um, and I think that was, and I think that was a case where uh, Williams' health was kind of getting in the way of things, and he also had Force Awakens at that point too. And then Alan Silvestri did Ready Player One, which I know was, I know part of it was health reasons, but I know Spielberg also felt was important for William have to have Williams on the post that that fall that winter so he and honestly Sylvester makes a lot of sense because so much of so so he was as indicative his music is as seminal to the 80s and the type of nostalgia that Ray Player One is playing off of than Williams is so yeah, well, we have Williams coming back for the Indiana Jones, right? And, and, and I think and the Fableman. That his and last. That's, 
Yeah. Yeah, he's got the Fablemans for Spielberg, which is probably going to be his last one. And then, yeah, I, I would be surprised. Indy 5 is supposed to be his last one, and it makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, it makes a lot of sense because I, I don't know what... And I, I do actually kind of hope that that's the last Indiana Jones film we get uh, because of the yeah. fact that, A, it's impossible to see anybody other than Harrison Ford in that role, and B, it's impossible to hear anybody other than John Williams scoring those films. Right. But, I mean, that's yeah. that's going to be something that uh, we, we're, we're actually going to be talking about both of those collaborators in separate cases uh in the future in the Sonic Cinema podcast but um you know I mean it, you know we're talking about composer collaborations with directors it, it's a natural segue I think right um Definitely. but yeah no it's that's it, it was it was a great little segue because of the fact that it does play into what we're talking about with Cloud Atlas and Matrix Resurrections in terms of you know what is it that brings change in the way filmmakers collaborate with other people. I, I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, it's always kind of an interesting uh, subject because, you know, not necessarily is every collaboration with a filmmaker going to last forever. So. Yeah, definitely. So do you have anything more that you would like to uh, talk about on the Cloud Atlas score before we wrap things up? No, I mean, I think we covered a lot of, of how it's it plays in so distinctively to this film. I think we, we covered uh, on, on both of these shows the, the rich themes of this movie and why people need to check it out. As, as we said on my show, it did massive underperformance at the box office, which is a huge disappointment to people like us who, who completely hold this up as... I never, I haven't done my list. I know you have yours. You have this at number one for your best of 2012 on Letterboxd. I I haven't done my top ten of of 2012, but I w- would imagine this has to be, if not in the top spot, very very close. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the music is a huge part of it. Uh, so it's it's unclear what's what the future of the Wachowskis' uh, filmography is going to look like, but. If nothing else, I feel like this is this was an outstanding piece of work, and the music is 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 a part and parcel of it. It's 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 not it's inextricable from this movie, and I think it's as it should be. So I would encourage people to check out both the the film and the score for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think this is one of those scores where you can listen to it because, like like you said, there are some scores that are very difficult to listen to apart from the film. They're such they're they're so specific to the film and they don't necessarily hold the same type of re-listen value separate from the film. Um this one does in a lot of ways that I think are very interesting and I hope that you are I really hope that you are listening to both of these podcasts in tandem because of the fact that I, th- I feel like we've done a really good job of separate we I know we talked about it earlier today about making sure that these were two very different listening experiences while also yeah. being connected by that same by the commonality of this film but approaching them from different perspectives 
And I, I think we did a really good job with that. And, um, yeah, this, this is, this was, this is one of my favorite scores of all time. It's one that really connected with me and it's one that I go back to very, very frequently. And I, I absolutely love it. Um, one more time before we, uh, sign off, uh, Robert, where can people find your work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brian, first of all, thank you so much for having me back on your show. I, I agree. I think between these two episodes, I feel like on my show, we tackled the movie Cloud Atlas. And on your show, we tackled the music Cloud Atlas, which I think is is so, so cool and so so fun of a, of a way to approach this project where the, the two elements are intertwined in, in such a, a uh, such a, a different way than you normally see in, in the industry. And People want to hear that episode again, or, or you know, they have been listening to this first and want to check that out. You can find Close Watch on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Like I said, we uh, are doing on my other show, Franchise Detours, the Dark Knight trilogy. Speaking of great movie scores, Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard's score for Batman Begins. Uh, we we talk about that on on that episode, Dark Knight as well, and. And that's again an interesting dynamic where those film, those score composers were divided the the work between the action stuff, the Batman stuff, and the Bruce Wayne stuff essentially, and each tackled an element of the the Batman Begins story at least. So uh, definitely find those on your podcast of choice, and you can follow me on Twitter at Crooked Table. Yes, and uh, this this is it's it's always fun to talk to Robert. Um, I've enjoyed very much my times being on close watch and franchise detours and look forward to more times in the future. I know we've got at least two on uh franchise detours that are uh that we've already talked about and I can't wait to get to those discussions that are going to be really fascinating. Um and yes, you're welcome back to Sonic Cinema anytime. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Brian. Likewise. I'd like to thank Robert for not only joining me on the Sonic Cinema podcast to talk about the score for Cloud Atlas, but having me on Close Watch to talk about the movie. Uh, I really, again, like I said in the, in the uh, episode, I do hope you get a chance to maybe even listen to these back and back. I think you'll get a really interesting collaboration on this movie, which is so much about connectivity so much and is such a rich text that I think is well worth discovering, especially if you haven't seen Cloud Atlas. It's 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 a tremendous film. I, I love this. Thank you very much for joining me on the Sonic Cinema podcast. Uh, once again, my original score for Player PhD is available for pre-order on Bandcamp. And uh, you get, if you pre-order before the release on twenty the 22nd you will officially you will get access to two of the uh pieces on the soundtrack uh check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema out the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts whether it's apple google spotify we've had so many great discussions this year i can't wait to wrap up with what we have to wrap up with it's gonna be a lot of fun um, some more established classics, talking about one of the great filmmakers of all time, somebody who's formative in my life, 
that we actually talked about on this podcast and then just talking about some of my favorite movies. And uh, finally, as always, check out my written reviews at www.sonic-cinema.com.